This is Habwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. What if all your financial transactions were in full view of the federal government? Beyond the implications for personal privacy, a potential federal power to encourage certain individual transactions or to prohibit others seems like an Orwellian dystopia, better suited to science fiction novels. Yet against the backdrop of digital currency viability and fear that the US dollar may lose its global fiat supremacy, many policymakers and thought leaders alike have advocated for the adoption of a central bank digital currency, or CBDC. Framed in the most positive light, a US digital currency could assuage privacy concerns in law while delivering the access, speed, and stability of a national digital currency, bringing dollar transactions into the 21st century. But would privacy assurances from our government outweigh the risk of trusting the Federal Reserve with the knowledge of and power over every financial transaction? What are the risks and benefits of a central bank digital currency? And how close are we as a nation to seriously considering it? My guest today is Nicholas Anthony of Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Mr. Anthony is an expert in financial privacy issues and digital currencies. He has done extensive research into the threat to privacy posed by outdated regulation and new technological innovation, and has written about the particular risk presented by a US central bank digital currency. He will share with us the merits of the public case for CBDCs and discuss whether those benefits outweigh the attending risk of adoption of a national digital currency. When I return, I'll be joined by Cato Institute's analyst, Nicholas Anthony. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Cato Institute's analysts in their Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, Nicholas Anthony. Welcome to Hubwonk, Nicholas. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Well, uh, I'm, I'm pleased to have you because I've enjoyed reading your work at Cato uh, on two closely related and emerging topics for all of our listeners. First is the need to update rules regarding financial privacy. And the other is this idea of a central bank digital currency. Uh, I want to focus primarily on the emerging support for a central bank digital currency, or CBDC, as we'll use in this uh, conversation for short. Uh, But before we go deep, let's bring our listeners up to speed. Um, We all know that um, our government prints out dollars, and those are uh, our dollars are recognized for all debts, public and private. What is a digital currency or a central bank digital currency by contrast? Well, it's kind of funny that we're seeing this as the latest innovation right now, because I think most listeners are going to be familiar with using digital money already. And that could be through a prepaid card, a debit card, credit card, or PayPal or Venmo. What really gets interesting with a central bank digital currency or a CBDC is when we start asking the deeper questions in the weeds of Who owns that money? Whose liability is it? Whose asset is it? And without going too far into it, the really big difference that is important for us right now between the money you use on your debit card versus a CBDC is that one is maintained by your bank, a private institution, and the other is actually maintained by the federal government. So we go from having this this private 
uh, sphere to now having sort of a, a digital tether to the central bank itself. And as I'm sure we'll get into, that creates a huge list of implications when you start right, so that's exactly the what I issue. I, yeah, that's exactly what I want to explore. Uh, and I'm sure our listeners, we've hopefully piqued their interest. Uh, so so I now I can currently use a dollar to pay bills or buy things. And those transactions are between parties. It might be me in the bank. It might be me in the grocery store. Um, you know, my bank or my uh, credit card company may know about my transaction, but but that's it. Now, um, personally, I'm confident that those firms are not planning to exercise some power over what I can buy. Visa doesn't care whether I buy, frankly, uh, nutritious food or uh, Big Macs and uh, Twinkies. Um, are you implying that a CBDC uh, is a different relationship? Some uh, you know that uh, would be different than you know that same amount of money being held by a private firm. If it's held by a central bank that creates a different relationship. That's where we really get into a mess with this because while we have the the freedom to choose if Visa does have an unofficial ban on Twinkies, uh, we're free to move over to another system. There's not many choices, but we are free to move. However, when you start having a government involved, we get into this mess that we all know well as politics. And you start getting these kind of informal treatments where a perfect example is what happened under the Obama administration with Operation Choke Point. And you had the administration pressure banks through the regulators to say, we don't want you to serve gun shops or pawn shops or payday lenders because they were politically disfavored. And the key part there with what happened before was that they had to go and pressure the banks to do this. And when you have it immediately available to the central bank, to the federal government, that creates a very different dynamic where they no longer have to go through these informal channels. They can start to say, we do want to impose whatever agenda it might be. It could be an agenda of the the left or the right. It really just matters who's in power. Yeah. So um, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I just want to say, um, does this necessarily mean we're, we're talking about banks or private institutions, financial institutions as intermediaries between me and the central bank, right? The central bank talks to the banks and the banks talk to us and we don't talk to the central bank. Why couldn't, in a sense, the existence of a central bank digital currency also include some sort of framework that says, oh, we'll keep the banks as they are. They're just going to use digital currency and we're going to use digital currency and they're going to sit in the middle just as we always did. You know, not, nothing to see here. Explain that. Well, that's that's a really well, funny part about not, this. That's, just... that's a really funny part of this process is the immediate uh, proposal to have a direct CBDC got taken as such a radical proposal that the Federal Reserve here in the United States actually proposed that as an idea of saying, let's have not a direct model, but an intermediated model where the banks will still be involved in the process. And there's a lot of individual problems that still come up through this. However, one of the biggest ones I want to flag right now is that the way the current banking system works would be kind of turned upside down through this process. If you have banks maintaining accounts on behalf of the federal government, where these are direct liabilities of the central bank, the bank is no longer able to offer loans based off of that. And 
then you start reducing in turn the supply of credit for every dollar that's held in a CBDC account maintained by the bank instead of held in a deposit account. And you start getting into a situation where we might see banks forced to merge even more than they already are, or even just close up shop entirely because credit becomes so scarce. And it's really unfortunate because here we have a problem, like you mentioned, that what if we just reintroduce banks as intermediaries and that solves that issue. But then we have a new problem that comes up. And it gets to this overlying theme that CBDCs really don't offer that many benefits, but they do offer problems all across the board, no matter which way you take them. And that's why it really seems like just a net negative from my perspective. All right. So let's do that. Let's give the benefit of, uh, let's talk about the benefits versus cost, which is kind of those of us with a more economic view of the world always like to talk about one hand and then the other hand. So let's start with the, the good hand. Let's let's make the case for uh, central bank digital currency. Um, uh, I've read uh, some of the cases for central bank because I want to sort of see the balance here. I've seen um, the case being made that, look, this digital currency will really be useful because it will help those people who don't have a banking relationship, the quote unquote unbanked. There's a lot of them. I'm always surprised when I hear about this. That some people just don't want to walk into a bank, but you know, with central bank digital currency, they'll feel a little bit better about it. Share with our listeners, you know, is this a solution for the unbanked? I don't think it is. I commend people for wanting to help people that are financially vulnerable. I think that's something that is a worthy endeavor, but I just don't think that this is that solution. When we think about who these people are, why they don't want to walk into a bank. Um, two of the top three reasons are that they don't trust the bank and they want to preserve their privacy. And I really have a hard time believing that uh, the government coming in is going to be a solution to that, considering Americans don't really trust the government. Uh, trust for the government to do the right thing is at historic lows. Um and in the same way, a lot of the reasons that banks are so intrusive about getting our information is because they're required to by law under the Bank Secrecy Act and the, the know your customer requirements that they have to uh, uphold under the Patriot Act. So if you cut out the banks, you're really not improving privacy and you're really not offering something for people to trust. And when we think about the unbanked, not just as this like percentage of Americans, but also as individuals, it starts to make sense that it's not going to be a huge solution. And the just getting back to another problem that's there as well, is that when we think about a CBDC, if it's just a payment account that you're able to move money in and out of, then it starts to sound a little bit like a prepaid card. And you don't need to reinvent the money supply to get prepaid cards for the unbanked if they just need a digital way to transact. And I think that's something that's really missed here is that we don't have to reinvent a whole new system just to make digital payments available. Indeed. All right. Well, um, that makes sense. Again, I, I don't think those who don't trust banks uh, will suddenly trust Uncle Sam. Uh, they regularly disappoint us. <laughs> so, um, you know, I'm not persuaded by that argument. What about the idea that, uh, frankly, you know, digital currency is faster um, 
you know, we've got one sort of central ledger, um, you know, all the friction between banks and uh, uh, would go away. Is there an ar argument to be made there? To that, I think that there could have been an argument um, if it was made about 10 years ago. Uh, right now, it's a little, it's it's kind of a case of too little, too late. The, the Federal Reserve um, announced in 2019 that it was going to introduce a faster payments network, something that's set for later this year. Two years before that, the private sector introduced the the real-time payments network uh, from the, the clearinghouse to speed up payments, which has been uh, improving every year as well. And now we're seeing innovations like stable coins. So there was a time when payments were we were in desperate need of faster payments or a solution to be proposed. But right now, it just doesn't seem like we're at that time anymore. We have those things coming onto the table. We have those things coming online. And it's for that reason that even members of the Federal Reserve have recognized that these innovations largely undermine the need for a CBDC. And it's not that's not unique to the U.S. Other countries have noted that as well. Uh, members of uh, other central banks, as well as members of other federal governments, have noted that their faster payment systems just make the case for a CBDC uh, less likely to come to fruition. Um, okay, then uh, I'll say personally, my the most. Uh salient or cogent argument I've seen, and I hate to say it sounds almost nationalistic, but we all enjoy the benefits or we've totally enjoyed the benefits of being the fiat currency, you know, the the, the world planet Earth's uh, currency, the dollar, and that creates all kinds of benefits. Demand for dollars is, you know, uh, largely how we support our love of borrowing. Um, if, if the world is, uh, in a sense, being challenged by digital currencies, doesn't it make sense to defend our currency by making it digital? In other words, we want the dollar to remain on top. If it remains, you know, traditional, uh, it doesn't go to digital. Uh, we'll be left behind in somebody else. Somebody else's digital currency will be uh, will have dominance. What say you to that kind of an argument? Again, here. Um... I think it's a good argument to be mindful of that we want to preserve this status, that we shouldn't take it for granted. But again, I just don't see a CBDC as solving that. And it really gets to the root of the issue of what is it about the dollar that has attracted so many people to it? And when you take a moment to think about that, it's pretty clear that it's not the question of digital payments. It's not the question of being able to pull up in your phone and, and Venmo someone that really attracts people to it. It's the legal rights that we have. It's the civil rights that we have. It's the strength of the U.S. economy that has attracted so many people to it. And with that, the natural solution that I see is to improve things, to improve, for instance, uh, financial privacy in this country. Uh, because even though a CBDC would make it worse, it's still pretty bad. And I think improving something like that, improving private property rights, are much more likely to protect the dollar's world reserve status. I know that it can be hard for some folks when they see uh, the Chinese government do just about anything. Their first reaction is uh, to throw their arms in the air and yell from the rooftops that we need to go to war or throw sanctions or repeat that. But 
I think it's safe to say nine times out of 10, it's not a good idea to to kind of out China by doing exactly what it's doing. Um, so, so, I, so I want to say, though, so you're sort of making almost like the metaphor, like this is a, arguably a Sputnik moment where we need to, uh, in a sense, go into space because the Soviets did. Now we've got the Chinese in digital currency. So let me take a step back for our listeners who aren't following this. Um, other countries have established central bank digital currencies, China, and I'm not sure we want to emulate them, but there are those among us who think they've got about it right. You know, we 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 need to have an all-powerful government that just does good things instead of bad things. You know, good luck to them. But I, I just say uh, China, and I think also like large countries like Nigeria have also implemented uh, central bank digital currencies. With regard to the its effect on their own sort of traditional currencies, what what effect has it? Has it helped or hurt or, you know, not had any effect at all. I, again, I, I don't know if this is beyond your ken, but, uh, you know, share with us what you do know. So China is a little bit of a weird case because they've been in a pilot phase now for a few years where they're kind of testing the waters and trying to introduce their CBDC. And it's a little strange how they've been a bit cagey about some of the the facts around it. Uh, we can turn to other countries, though, to to see a little bit more of what's happening. And Nigeria is a very interesting case, sadly, for some of the worst reasons. Um, late last year, uh, Nigeria was struggling with adoption for its CBDC, the e-Naira. And adoption was at about 0.5% of the population. And shortly after that, the central bank announced that it would be replacing all of the cash. It would be updating the notes and changing what they look like. So it wanted to pull them off the streets and and would exchange them. But because it wanted to do this over a couple months with a 200 million uh, person population, it quickly resulted in a cash shortage. And it's it's kind of interesting for a case study because people were struggling, people were protesting in the streets, and this should be a time where a digital currency should swoop in to be a hero, to, to save everyone, offer a lifeline. And although the central bank was quick to celebrate that adoption had increased 12-fold, we need to keep that in context because... 12 times 0.5% is not very high that we're talking about a 6% of the of the population is using this thing and that's really not a lifeline for anyone so it didn't help nigerians in time of crisis it didn't help their unbanked population which if i recall correctly is about 50% of the country and it seems more than anything that it was something that the government just poured a bunch of money in uh, to a project because it contracted out uh, to CBDC designers and hasn't really solved much except for maybe being the the spur for this cash shortage. So again, it it kind of like when we were talking about the the benefits that it really fails to accrue in theory, it seems like in practice as well. It's it's failed to offer anything really positive. So in, in a case like Nigeria, you're talking about trying to say solve for a currency that has uh, is somewhat unstable in its in its sort of paper form. Um, but we're not talking about that in the United States, at least not yet. Uh, so essentially, we don't have a 
the same problem solved. All right, uh, let's let's uh, let's talk more technical now about uh, let's think about policymakers. We have the Fed raising rates. Uh, we're trying to slow the economy or put gas in the economy. You know, we're we're, we're trying to manipulate uh, demand and demand driven or su supply constrained inflation. Uh, for those who advocate for digital currency, think of all the power that one could have to spontaneously you know, uh, control interest rates or the value of a currency, uh, you know, with a click of a, a dial. Doesn't this uh, give power to the policymakers to adjust, fine tune the uh, government with just one more lever to pull or a, a rather large lever to pull? What do you say to those kind of arguments? Well, it's really interesting because one of the most common arguments that we see for CBDCs, so picture everyone in America has this digital wallet with this digital currency in it and that's tied to the central bank that by surveilling what you do, the central bank can see that you're making purchases or not and can implement what's known as negative interest rates. So I'm sure most people are familiar with positive interest rates when you get paid for, say, uh, saving your money. Uh, you might get a, a few percentage points. Uh, this is the flip side of the story where instead of getting paid to save, you're getting punished. You're getting penalized for saving. And the idea is that, say we're going towards a recession or a downturn in the economy, the policymakers see this, so they want to get people spending more, so they just make a negative interest rate. And instead of saving your money you'll, where you'll be losing it, you're effectively encouraged to go spend your money. You're encouraged to go out and buy that computer that you were debating or that car to help get the economy rolling again. Because I just want to be clear, because with a negative interest rate, my savings will be getting smaller if I don't spend it. So it's saying, you know, go ahead and save, but, it, you know, it's a losing battle. Go out there and spend it. And this would be their their lever for and stimulating the economy, arguably artificially, but indeed it would stimulate demand if you know your bank is, your account is getting smaller every day. Exactly, exactly. And the risk that kind of comes out of that, first off, there's, there's a huge um, risk on the table as far as politicizing the central bank. Because once you have something like that, Congress already looks at the Fed as a as a tool for for spending or uh, fueling spending, but it would just be increased exponentially. However, another problem, though, coming from from Cato, uh, I'm regularly critiquing the Fed and, and critical of its decisions. That should be no surprise to anyone. But I want to be clear that there's another problem when you have the Fed directly controlling rates that apply to individuals. Because when it gets it wrong, there's no longer a, a bank in between to kind of buffer those shocks. It's affecting individuals on the ground. They have to pay for those consequences. And the weight is that much heavier of what could happen. And I encourage anyone... Um, that wants to see how the history of the Fed has has performed to look at George Selgin has a paper um, called Has the Fed Been a Failure with Larry White and Bill Estraps. Uh, I believe it's in the Journal of Macroeconomics. And it looks at the first hundred years of the Federal Reserve and shows that it really failed to achieve its mission over time. And when I see that, a hundred years of failing to 
to meet it or, or meet its mission, or even just the past 10 years when uh, it could barely get rates off the zero lower bound, or right now with what we're seeing with inflation, although we're lucky it's not worse, it's still far from ideal. I really worry what could happen if it had a hand in individual wallets of every American. Indeed. So, okay, now we've tried to try to make a good case for the um, for the CBDC, and I think we're not. Um, we're talking about uh, uh, the government essentially having a ledger of everything you buy, right? But okay, look, I, I you and I maybe have uh, share libertarian sort of uh, sentiments or uh, intuition. But let's face it: three hundred thirty million Americans buying stuff all the time. You know how how can the government really you know keep track of that? They they don't they don't know any, anything really. Uh, should we be worried that um, the government has a ledger of everything I buy? I think so. Um, I think you make a good point that this is a unfathomable amount of data. So we might not have to worry so much about. Uh, pick your favorite senator or representative reading through every transaction. But I think we do have to worry about what's going to happen with that data sitting still, this, this mountain out there. Because a lot of folks look at financial data as something that needs to be just throw it in the vault. And if we get suspicious about, about you or I, uh, if they get suspicious about you or I, they can pluck at the data or take a look through or comb through it then to try to find what's going on in your life. And I think that gets really disturbing when we think about how our financial transactions reveal more about us than, say, what we post on Facebook or Twitter. Um, on Facebook and Twitter, we post what we want people to see or how we want our life to be perceived, which means we might exaggerate, we might edit that photo, we might uh, tell white lies about the the award we won or the new promotion or something. And there, it's kind of like a story uh, that could be quickly fictionalized. Financial transactions, you really can't make up stories with that because it says where you went to lunch. It says what political party you donated to or what think tank you donated to. Um, it says if you bought cannabis uh, at a legalized state, that's still a problem considering it's federally illegal and you're talking about using a federal payment system. But but, but but Nicholas, let me just push back a little bit. Sure, we all have Fourth Amendment rights, and I think you're an expert in this sort of idea of financial privacy, but we know the sort of that that we've pierced that level of of security, oh, and and the pretext, and arguably it's a legitimate pretext, is that um, you know we want to look for terrorists. You know, make sure you're not sending money and buying bombs. We want to make sure you're not money laundering. We might want to make sure you're not evading your taxes. So already the government has all kinds of uh, tools in its bag if it really wants to pick apart your financial transactions. Uh, they just have to you know uh, just apply for i guess it would be a fisa warrant and and look at everything you 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 do so how how is this any different and that's why i want to be so clear that while folks get upset and rightly so about central bank digital currencies and cbdcs the fight does not end there 
even if we could uh, wave a wand and say CBDCs are, are off the table completely, there's still so much to do to improve financial privacy in this country because really the 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 fight against uh, terrorism, drugs, and the like has resulted in the government pretty much having uh, almost complete control and complete visibility into what we do uh, financially. There's a very small air gap right now that is maintained by having this separation through the, the banking system. And what changes between this bad state that we're in right now to this worse state with CBDCs is that that small air gap, that last remaining buffer of protection is eliminated. That's closed. And that's what makes such a big difference because you no longer have to have the government go through the steps of meeting with the bank, making sure that the bank's counsel is checking to make sure everything's correct. Instead, it has access by default. And that's okay. a big difference. So um, we, we, you touched on it earlier. And I think, you know, so uh, um, we want to talk about the government taking action against individuals. And you say, oh, look, you know, it, it can if it thinks you're a criminal. But at the, in the aggregate, 330 million Americans, too much information. It has a flood of information. So it's unlikely. But again, maybe it's unfair to do this, but I'm thinking about cases where government action is taken not against individuals, but groups of individuals. You, you mentioned, you know, who, which think tank you may contribute to. But I'm thinking maybe it's not fair to use Canada as an example. But back in the trucker protests, uh, we had, you know, some people pretty upset about some of the, the COVID restrictions and they protested. They parked their cars in the middle of, I guess it was Ottawa at the time. And, and the government decided to use its power to say, OK, if you're a trucker. Uh, you, uh, your bank is, uh, is uh, shut down. Uh, it seems to me that, you know, a CBDC, as you say, the absence of one doesn't prevent such action, uh, but the presence of one facilitates such action. Is that pretty much true? Yes, you're, you're spot on. It, it speeds up the process and makes it so much easier because they would have that, that direct access. They, in that situation, the, the only real buffer was that they had to go find the banks to figure out who was who and what was what. And instead, it would just be streamlined. And normally, streamlining uh, processes is a good thing. But when we're talking about uh, the ability of the, the government to abuse its powers, that's something we don't normally want to streamline. No, indeed. And again, it sounds uh, perhaps we're in violent agreement. It seems somewhat paternalistic. I think if they know what you can buy, they also can perhaps constrain what you can buy, almost like a parent giving their child money for lunch and the child wants to buy candy instead. If the mother could, parents can control that money and restrict it only to buying lunch, it seems to me the government in this case could indeed say, yeah, you've got some digital currency in that wallet, but don't go about, you know, better buy um, fresh vegetables and not a bottle of bourbon. Like, you know, <laughs> this seems obvious. Yes. And it it worries me so much because when we think about how many, for instance, taxes are set up uh, to try to discourage people from taking certain actions. So uh, this is something we think of in, in economics as Pigouvian taxes, but uh, more uh, commonly as, as sin taxes, not to be confused with sin tax, uh, but a tax on sinful activity. And so if you can increase the price of, of that bottle of bourbon, 
maybe somebody will be less likely to to become an alcoholic or drink and drive. Uh, same thing with, with cigarettes. And I think that that parent example is perfect because when we go from the parent and child to the the citizen and government, a paternalistic government might want to say, um, don't buy that that bottle of of bourbon or don't get those two drinks at the bar or say, um, I saw that you parked by the club tonight. So you can't have more than one drink or you can't have any drinks uh, because there's a high probability that you drove and would then drink and drive. And what gets really disturbing is that on two fronts, the first being the options are li- are limitless. It really is limitless of what you could program uh, for better and worse. And second, this isn't a really conspiratorial idea. I, I really wish it was, but we've had routinely, uh, for instance, the, uh, the head of the IMF uh, say openly that this is the benefit of a CBDC is this programmable nature that we can say exactly what people purchase, exactly what they spend their money on. And it's routinely cited as a benefit that they get to take these targeted policy steps to say what people can and cannot do. And yeah. so it's very far from being an outlandish idea. Um, again, I wish it was uh, just me uh, musing and and looking to the sky of what the worst thing is. But sadly, this is probably what's going to be implemented if we're if one were to take shape. Well, we don't have to look much further. I think it was Bloomberg who banned like the 64 ounce Slurpee year. Something like this, <laughs> you know, this t- taken to the nth degree, right? We're, you know, no more big Slurpees. Uh, the government th- thinks that those are bad for you. Um, exactly. But, but let, 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 again, let me push back. This is America, you know, my if I'm imagining this uh, brave new digital world, uh, I'm thinking, OK, most Americans say, look, if this is the rules of using digital currency, I'm not having any part of it. I'll use cash. I'll use something else, anything. But let the government know what I'm doing. I certainly don't want a big brother telling me how to live my life. Wouldn't it dry up and blow away in this situation? In other words, you know, who would deliberately opt to use it? And as such, you talked about the difficulty of uptake in uh, Nigeria uh, with 0.5 percent or something like that. Uh, I can't imagine it being 0.5 of Americans, you know, but nobody wants to submit to some sort of uh, uh, rigor- rigorous scrutiny. And I think, let me let me be clear that the Federal Reserve, to its credit, has recognized that this is an issue. And the Federal Reserve has openly said that they don't see a CBDC as replacing cash, replacing the existing system. However, that really doesn't make sense. Because a lot of these, these so-called benefits of, of tracking you, of paying negative interest rates, of programming exactly what you can and cannot buy, all of these depend on there being no alternative. Because if you can turn to cash, to your debit card, to your favorite cryptocurrency, or even to a foreign currency, if you can turn to any alternative then they lose the powers that they gained through a CBDC. So there's really no point in introducing one if people can turn to another option. And that's why we've seen in other countries this like 
consistent correlation between banning cryptocurrencies and introducing a CBDC. So we saw that in China. We saw that uh, India had, uh, I remember in one proposal, it said to ban uh, cryptocurrencies and introduce a CBDC within the same two sentences. Um, in Nigeria, uh, if I remember the mechanics correctly, banks are prohibited from uh, using cryptocurrencies. And it's because they recognize that they need to get rid of the competition or else no one's going to use these CBDCs. And the perfect example really is Nigeria because so much of the population uses cash that it wasn't until there was a government-created cash shortage that some people started to use the CBDC. And so while the Federal Reserve here has staked a position that it doesn't seek to replace cash, I very much worry that that is only going to be a uh, talking point for the immediate future and not what we see as reality. Yeah. So I, again, we know well that government doesn't like competition because invariably it loses uh, <laughs> to, to the private sector. So uh, what better way than to smash all alternatives? Um, what about this? Again, I hear this floating around that if uh, the um, uh, Digital currency, central bank digital currency offers a, a rate of return that it will force private banks to outcompete. It will say, okay, if they're offering X, we have to offer X plus uh, you know, 50 bips or something like that, and say, okay, uh, this will encourage a better um um return on my bank deposits. Uh, is there any merit to that argument? I think it's an interesting argument because it it offers the idea of the federal government competing with the private sector on this theoretical level playing field. And the problem I have with that is that the playing field really isn't level between the two of them because the powers that the Federal Reserve have greatly outmatch the powers of even the strongest banks because we have to remember that not only would the Federal Reserve be a competitor, but it's also the regulator. So it gets to write the rules and play the game. It's it's a bit like the the referee being the goalie and then saying that any shot that made it in was, was a foul. Um, it's really troublesome when you get there. And the other problem with it is it's a very dangerous game to walk when you're kind of inventing the prices and setting the prices, forcing that type of competition. Because we can ignore the fact that banks have all these costs that they have to try to recover to remain profitable. And just focus on the idea of picking the right rate. And the Federal Reserve uh, actually had a research paper out that looked at this question and tried to make the argument. And in the first section of the paper. It tried to say that as long as the rate is low enough, it'll create competition and it won't undo the banking sector. It won't undermine it and cause it to collapse. And what I loved was that sounds great until you get to the very last sentence of the paper or the very last paragraph where it says that but if yeah, the rate's set too high. Yeah, I was going to say the opposite. If, too low, if low enough preserves the banking, well, you don't want the bank, just turn up the rate. Right. Exactly. And you okay. get into this dangerous walk of you have to make this like 
perfect CBDC that doesn't violate privacy, but violates privacy enough that it can be programmable and pay interest rates and track you. But then it also pays an interest rate to attract people to it, but it doesn't pay it too high so that it doesn't undermine the banking system. And when you talk about this idea, it quickly becomes clear that you're spinning a lot of plates and only one plate needs to fall to make a very terrible idea happen. And to that, I just look at it and I ask myself, why do we even want to spin these plates? Right. What What is the benefit we're getting out of this besides having a, a circus show? Well, so, you know, I, there's many more questions I want to ask, but we're up against time here. And I, I appreciate you, you, you taking valuable time to share with our listeners uh, your views. Um, I want to cut to the chase for many of our people, uh, listeners who are saying, okay, I'm I'm on a team. I don't care what's right and wrong. Wh which team should is for this and which is against it? Does this have a political valence? Does it have either a partisan, you know, Democrats versus Republicans or or progressive versus conservative? Uh, I think there's people in our audience who think the government is their friend. And why would I worry that they have a, an account of all my uh, my purchases? I will just say to them, uh, do you want President Trump to be telling you what you can buy, my progressive friends, uh, maybe that'll shake their uh, <laughs> view. But share with our listeners, wh what do you think? Is, is this a, a right-left um, debate or, or not? I think right now it seems like a right-left debate. I think it comes across as a uh, Republican stance to be anti-CBDC. But I think what you just said is exactly why it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Because while Republicans uh, criticized when Trudeau froze the, the bank accounts of the truckers, the same exact thing could have happened with, say, uh, Trump and uh, Black Lives Matter protests. And the same thing could happen with uh, a left administration, as we saw with uh, the Obama administration and gun shops, just as it could with a right administration and uh, cannabis dispensaries that are legal in legal states. It's really unfortunate um, to think about just how bad this gets. But one of the things that's clear from how bad it gets is that it's a threat to both uh, values for Republicans and Democrats. And so I'm hopeful that while a lot of Republicans have taken notice at the moment, I'm hopeful that that needle will shift over time and that there will be a bipartisan consensus that privacy is something worth preserving and economic freedom is something worth celebrating. Indeed, I hope everybody catches on to that idea uh, that uh, uh, individual liberty and freedom and privacy are, are valued, uh, uh, liberal traditional values. Um, it's, uh, I don't know if you can hear the noise behind me, but the city of Boston has conspired against my uh, my podcast and has a jackhammer right outside my uh, my home. Um, so we're getting close to the end of our time together. We're um, can our listeners read more, learn more, and stay abreast of what seems to be an emerging issue, but one that has salience for everyone, everybody in this uh, listening, uh, you know, cares 
but involvement their government has in their financial transactions. So where can we learn more about your work uh, and the advocacy you have uh, with your, um, your policy colleagues? So all of my work can be found at cato.org. Uh, just go to the webpage, search CBDC, and you'll find uh, all the stuff I've written. Uh, and just the same, you can find me on Twitter at EconWithNick. Uh, and I regularly post updates there as well. So you'll see all my, my latest papers. Wonderful. Well, that's uh, again. I, I I read Cato quite a bit, and I was thrilled. I think you're not just a great researcher, but a, a fantastic writer. You you really do lay things out in, a, in an easy to understand way. So, thank you for being my guest. Liz, you've been a, a terrific uh, benefit to our listeners. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends or on social media. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Hubwonk.